Welcome to the Campus Christian Fellowship Podcast for the University of Iowa, Iowa State University, and the University of Northern Iowa. I think this is one of those parts where Paul starts to move to the next question that the Corinthians had in their list. I I imagine that Paul's got this big, long list of questions. He's like, okay, check that one off. And then he goes, okay, let's get into this one. And so let's go ahead and go back a slide so we can see how Paul starts us off. I praise you for remembering me and everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. There's there's a clue that Paul runs throughout Corinthians, and that's that's like his, where he's going to go move on to the next question. So the beginning of an of a time when he starts addressing a specific question that, that the Corinthians has, he reminds them of traditions. And we've already seen this in other places in Corinthians, where when he's about to make a specific statement about some specific issue, he's, he reminds them of traditions, of what Christ has passed along, of what the church does. It's these traditions that he says, these are the important things that you kind of need to stick to. And so he uses that as his, like, I said segue already. I'll stick with that word. As a segue to move to the next topic. Reminds them of tradition. So that's what verse 2 basically means. Um, And then he starts going on to this head of our man is Christ, head of the woman is the man, head of Christ is God. Part of the problem that we have with this is we don't know what question the Corinthians asked. And I feel like if we knew what question they were asking, we would have a way better idea of what the heck Paul is talking about. It's what makes all of these letters, all of Paul's epistles, kind of hard to determine because we're listening to one end of the conversation. All we have is what Paul has said in response. But from that, you can still kind of extrapolate, get some idea of what's going on because he starts talking about male and female stuff and roles and relationships. I think he's, he's trying to figure out a way to discuss of what a woman's role is in the church. This, by the way, is one of those controversial topics in the church oftentimes, and churches have split over this, and different denominations have started because of this question, and there's been lots of issues, and there's people who get called conservative or liberal, and both of those terms are used negatively somehow. Problem is, we're missing a lot of the cultural context, and there's a lot of things that we're missing out on when we just read it at face value and just start getting confused about head coverings and and, and then he talks about how the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is a man. What is going on? Well, let's start with that. Let's start with verse 3. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. So the thing about that word, head there, what it's really taking the place of, remember, Paul, um, while he does speak Greek, writes Greek, he is like ethnically raised Jewish. And so in many ways, Aramaic, Hebrew, like those are kind of his native tongues. And the Hebrew word for head is Rosh. It, Rosh Hashanah is one of those holidays maybe you've heard of, one of the Jewish holidays. But the Rosh word means head. The thing about the word head is it has more than one meaning. It can mean you know, your actual physical head, the head of a person. It can mean authority, which most people when they read this, they think authority. But it can also mean origin. And actually the cool thing is in English, head works that way too. It can mean your head, it can mean authority, or it can mean origin. And sometimes origin is one of the lesser known, but the way I like to describe it is when people talk about the headwaters of a river, that's like the origin source point of that river. And so that's how 
kind of origin head of that word is word. And so if you think about, just maybe we should sub-origin there. And so we read, but I want you to realize that the origin of every man is Christ. And the origin of the woman is man, and the origin of Christ is God. Now, there's some people who start to disagree with that because of just different things, but I think if we take that... So, Christ is considered the agent in creation. Everything that's created, everything that's on earth, happened through Christ. Like, God made, but Christ was the agent. There's some of that language within Genesis, as well as uh, Hebrews goes and talks about that, how... Like, that's a pretty solid orthodoxy Christian point. Um, so if we think of the origin of man in Christ, since Christ is the age in creation, that checks out, that works. Uh, the origin of the woman is man. Well, we've got back to the garden. There's Adam first, and then the ribs taken out of Adam, and from that woman is made. So you can think about that being the origin. From the very first man, um, the woman comes out of Man, it's actually why she's named woman. Isha is the Hebrew word there, which comes from ish, which is the word for man. Cool language stuff, ish. Isha, taken out of man, ish. So, pretty literal. The origin of Christ is God. And this is where some people might disagree, but if you kind of go through some of our Christian doctrines and stuff, it talks about how um, Christ is like... We, talk, we refer to him as the only begotten son, if you're kind of in that older translation version of John 3.16. And that uh, Christ is actually eternally begotten of God. And so the idea of God being the origin of Christ, like that still gets out under some of those orthodoxy lines. That means that those aren't saying authority. And a lot of people, when they take that, they start to go authority. The authority of every man is Christ. Well, that, uh, that works. I'm okay with that. The, the authority of the woman is man. Well, then that automatically places a man above a woman. And I, I'm, I actually don't like that. Even though I'm a man, and that gives me the authority. For one, I'm not sure if I want it. Um, but also, I don't think that's how God made people to be. Um, and the authority of Christ is God. And there's some people who would, who would say, no, that, that checks out. But I don't think the Trinity works that way. I think there's this equal authority between all members of the Trinity. So there's some people who disagree about those members of the Trinity, and so that maybe checks out, maybe doesn't check out. I don't think it checks out, which is why I don't like the word authority there. Um, it's one of the reasons I don't like the word authority there. But so, to me, because the Trinity thing, I think that also means we should be using origin for all of those, which, again, putting men and women on kind of that equal footing. Let's move on to verse 4. Every man who prays or prophecies with his head covered dishonors his head. Um, this kind of goes back to some just kind of cultural things of, like, with Judaism, you know, you guys have seen the, the yarmulkes that people wear, and, just that, and men wear them, and they're supposed to keep their heads covered, like, at all times, and as they pray to God, like, it's a sign of respect, a sign of honor. As I said before, the Corinthian church is, like, half Jewish, half Greek, maybe not, with numbers, it's, like, 40, 40, 20, because there's, a, like, a Roman population, too, but anyway, there's a significant Jewish population and a significant Greek population, so when there's culture, Paul usually says is, be accommodating. Be accommodating to the culture that's going to be offended. Just do what they would would do so that you're not offending your brother. He talks about with the food sacrifice to idols thing that we covered uh, a couple weeks ago. Of just, you know, how about you lay down your own freedoms for the sake of your brother. And so he says here, just, you know, think about that. But maybe go with the thing that's, that's less freedom but more loving to your brother. So that's kind of what he's doing with verse 4 there. And then five, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head is the same thing as having her head shaved. The cool thing is there's multiple things going on here. Because, so we've got this thing about 
woman's role in the church. And I think verse 5 is actually one of our big keys here. Because he talks about every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered and signs her head. The idea of prophesy there, that's one of those words that we don't use as often anymore. It actually, in the ancient church, uh, the word that we would use there is preaches. Because a prophet in the early church was basically the person who came up and gave the message from God, a proclamation from God. They're the ones who said, hey, this is what God says. In our modern church context, that's people who preach. Stand in front of a church and give the word of God. We've kind of taken prophecy to mean like this extra future telling thing, which makes it all kinds of confusing. But in their context, prophesy basically was synonymous with preach in our context. So in verse 5, if Paul didn't want women to have leadership roles in the church, instead of dealing with all these cultural things about if a woman should have her head covered or uncovered or whatever, he would probably just say, why do you have women up front praying and preaching to your church? Their place should be in the congregation, not up front. But Paul never says that here. He never condemns any, any woman for praying, for preaching to the church. Instead, he tackles a cultural issue of should their head be covered, should their head be uncovered? What does that look like? And so for me, verse 5 is probably the main key as to why I think Paul would be in support of women in leadership doing all the same things that men do in the church. It might be a dramatic statement, but I don't think it is. Because Paul has plenty of opportunity to say, don't do that. Instead, he covers this cultural issue. So, just so it's clear, head shaving uh, is a thing that would happen in ancient times, generally if you were a prostitute. Because it's advantageous to have a wig of any color. So the women, prostitutes generally in this time, would shave their head. So they'd have their collection of wigs. It would help them make more money. It's a business decision. But generally, any woman that has a shaved head, most people would assume naturally that she's a prostitute. There's also this whole thing where you cover your hair if you're a female because it's considered to be too alluring to, to men. And so you do that out of, out, of, out of respect, out of honoring, out of... Um, helping um, men in your society not be too allured by your beautiful hair. But that's not something that we like give that big of a deal about because we've got way too much other stuff shown in our culture that most people don't worry about hair so much. But essentially, that's kind of what Paul's saying. He's, he's saying, go ahead and cover up your hair because if your hair is uncovered, people are going to be distracted. It's just, it's the culture. And they're going to be thinking more about, about you, the fact that you're showing your hair, maybe that your hair is too alluring or whatever. I'm not going to focus on what you're saying, which is the important part of you being up front to people, that you're prophesying, that you're giving a word from God, that you're praying for his people. It's important the words that are coming out of your mouth, not the way that you look. So be willing to sacrifice some of your freedoms. Again, Paul's saying, it might not be that big of a deal for you to have your hair uncovered in, in the big scheme of things. But in your cultural context, it's a big deal. People are going to notice. People are going to talk. People are going to focus more on that than on what you're preaching. So go ahead and cover your hair so that people will listen to the words that God is speaking through you. And he talks about might as well cut your hair off. It's a great standard to So that's containing on that cultural stuff. Let's go to the next set of verses on the next slide. Uh, this is when it starts talking about guys covering their heads and uh, image and glory of God and women's glory of 
man. And so that kind of like what's going on there. Because there's that woman is the glory of man part. So you can kind of get back to, well, is woman in a less of a place? Is, is woman in, in a greater place? What's going on? I think, I think Paul here is going back to the creation account. Because there's something cool that happens in creation. And the world starts as formless and void. And then God calls for there to be light. And then he starts making animals and things that populate the earth. And then right near the end of his creation, he creates man. And one of the things that the biblical writers will say about creation is that it has this arc. Where things start getting more beautiful and more complex and more wondrous as God goes along. And so the last thing that he creates is, is like the apex of creation. For those of you that are paying attention, man is created, but after man is created, woman is created. And so if you follow that train of thought, woman is the apex of creation. If you don't think about that man as male beings, but think about the word man there as referring to mankind, then saying woman is the glory of mankind Instead of placing a woman under a man, this suddenly places women, maybe even above men, the apex of creation. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. I think Paul here is going back to that order of things and, and, and reminding them. He's, again, here, linking to the creation story. Just in case you didn't get that verse 7 was talking about the creation story, let me remind you about Adam and Eve and about how that's how woman was created from Adam, but after Adam because apex of creation. It's for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Okay, honestly, I don't know what's going on here. This one is weird. Um, I've heard someone at one point said, time, uh, said that there's like this uh, midrash. Uh, midrash, by the way, is uh, Jewish writings that kind of try to explain. It's essentially a commentary on the Old Testament. And so there's this midrash about in Genesis that uh, the whole thing with talking about the Nephilim and they say that the reason they were fallen angels is because they were looking and thought that the women were so beautiful that they just had to be with them. And so they left heaven, became beings on earth so that they could marry women. And then the Nephilim are the race of those angel and human females having kids together. And the Nephilim are this giant race that's like half angel, half human. You don't have to buy into that. I'm not saying that's how it went. But it's possible here that Paul is referencing this midrash and saying, you should probably cover your hair because it's so alluring that you're even tempting angels to come down to earth. So just keep that in mind. Maybe that's what Paul's saying. Maybe he's saying something else. I've also heard an argument that the angels kind of, one of their roles in creation is to just praise God and to acknowledge his glory and seeing all the beauty and wonder that he's made. And they've been doing that from the day of creation until now, and they will continue doing it. That's a role of an angel, is to proclaim God's glory. And so the angels are also recognizing, again, the beauty of creation, and they're going to talk about it. And so that's why um, it's talking about glory over your head. I don't know. I don't know what the explanation for that is. That's some of the things I've heard, why Paul brings up angels. But if you ask me, I'm sure by the reason, I'm sure the Corinthian church understood his reason, but I don't know what it was. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Again, I think this is where Paul's kind of trying to be like, remember, there's still, there's equality there, that everybody's interconnected, that people matter. People, people in relationship, whether it be a marital relationship, whether it just be a normal interaction, human-to-human -human relationship, we're all interconnected. 
we all kind of got to care about each other and, and view each other equally. That helps. First woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Stop worrying about who was created first, who was created second, who came from whom. It all goes back because the rib was taken from Adam, but every man who exists was born from a mom. And so you're kind of all, nobody has primacy here. There's no reason to make those kind of arguments. And everything comes from God anyway. Paul's shooting down all those possible arguments. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for one to pray to God with their head uncovered? It's not the very nature of things to tell you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it's for glory. Again, Paul's just kind of talking about some cultural things, kind of bringing them up and saying, you may recognize that you have freedom to wear your hair however you want to, but your culture is going to dictate certain things, and you may need to sacrifice those freedoms in order to best reach your culture. In order to best worship God, pay attention to the culture you're in, and make sure you're communicating the right message to them. And that's, that's something that's worth sacrificing your freedoms over, even if you do have those freedoms. I guess one of the things I want to bring up is the reason I think people fight so hard on this is because they're worried about the can of worms that this opens up. If you take passages that you've always heard of being one way, and then say, well, but if you pay attention to the culture, it's actually the reverse of that. And then people start to question and wonder, well, what other scriptures have I completely been mishearing or mistaught, and that maybe the culture is opposite of? And what can I trust where is scriptural authority on this? One of the things that I want to point out is that, um, and I'm not lightly saying you can just completely flip a view on scripture. And the lens, again, that I'm viewing this passage through is the lens of the gospel. And the things that I think maybe culturally we've misunderstood on scripture, when it comes to the big picture, when it comes to the really important stuff, a lot of those things are fairly inconsequential. Now, this obviously has major consequences for it being used to keep women from serving, from, from being the people that God has created them to be. And any time a verse, a passage of scripture is used to oppress someone, that is a big deal. I'm not trying to say this isn't that big of a deal. What I'm trying to say is this passage, I don't think is any, gonna keep anyone from being saved. I don't think it's going to keep anyone from, you know, going to heaven or going to hell. It's, it's not defining those things. So when we look at it from that big picture lens, it is somewhat inconsequential. Yes, it absolutely matters. It can affect our culture. It can affect the way people are treated in the church. Absolutely. And because of that, I think we need to view it properly, which is why I'm saying what I'm saying and why I'm trying to give that gospel lens on it. But what I'm not saying is don't just think suddenly that you can't trust anything that's found in Scripture. I don't want this to shake you to your very core. I want this to be a place where you go, okay, if we think about the gospel and we think about the things that Jesus did and how he revolutionized the world and, and, and when you see the way that he moves around in his culture that I would say is very anti-women and he elevates the role of women and the fact that there are women that he's willing to even speak to, which his culture says he can't. The woman at the well, for example. He talks to her, and he gives her hope, and he tells her about who he is, and it so transforms her life that she goes and tells everybody in her village. And according to Jesus' culture, he wasn't even supposed to talk to that woman in the first place. 
and how he confronts this woman that's been caught in adultery. And, and instead of her being stoned, which is what Scripture says is supposed to happen according to the very strict following of the laws of the Old Testament, Jesus says, let he who has sinned cast the first stone. And then when everybody is left because they're all with sin, Jesus says, hey, your accusers aren't here. Go be free of a better life. This is what Jesus does for women in his culture. I think he's very countercultural. I think that's something that we need to respect and remember as we take this gospel lens. And the thing about Paul, too, is a big part of his ministry are really influential, really important women that support him. There's this thing that happens in Greek languages, and whenever you list people, you always list the most important person first. And of the like five times that Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned, it's in that order. Priscilla, the female, first, Aquila, second. There's like one time where it's flipped. But all the other four times, she's the more important member of that couple. And I think that should say that she's a pretty important person in the church, a church leader. And I think if you would take Paul at, let's say, face value, or at least the way that a lot of people will take these passages and say that women aren't as important, they shouldn't have authority, and they should be not allowed to speak in churches, that all those influential women that were helping Paul in his ministry probably wouldn't have hung out with Paul because he'd be pretty darn offensive to them. Because he would basically be saying, everything that you're doing is wrong. They probably wouldn't support him. And by support, I mean like literally helping Paul eat. These are people that he's living with, that are providing him with home, with food, with what he needs to be the preacher that he is. These women support him, these prominent, important women. And it's in more than one city. It's not just in Corinth, it's in other places as well. I think Paul elevates the position of women in his culture, much like Jesus did. And I think that's something that we need to be conscious of. To see those that are mistreated, those that are oppressed, those that are overlooked, and elevate their position in our society so that they will feel that love and grace that God had. Hey, thanks for checking us out and spending some time with us this week. Quick reminder, if you're a student at Iowa State, University of Northern Iowa, or University of Iowa, we would love to connect you with a campus minister. So reach out to ccf.uiowa at gmail.com, and we will make sure we get you connected. Be sure to specify your school in an email. Additionally, if you have questions about anything you've heard today or anything that's on your mind, we would love a chance to answer that here anonymously. So you can also just drop a line there. Again, that is ccf.uiowa at gmail.com. We hope you have a great week, and please know that we are praying for you.